afternoon, good evening, and welcome to another episode of Better Place, Talking International Law with me, Jonathan Coley from RMIT University in a still locked down Melbourne, Australia. I am very pleased today to have with me uh, to talk all things uh, peace negotiations and transitional justice, uh, the prof amazing Professor Paul Williams. Um, I think he's the archetypal scholar practitioner of international law um, and so pleased that he's, he's come along to share some of his journey and insights with us. Paul, welcome. Thank you, Jonathan. It's a uh, pleasure to be here with you uh, to have this conversation. And, and where are you joining us from? Uh, joining from Arlington, Virginia, just in the uh, suburbs of Washington, D.C., from my, uh, my former daughter's uh, bedroom, hence the millennial pink uh, background. So we, we shipped her off to college, and, uh, and I took over her, uh, her bedroom for my, uh, my home study. That's fantastic. And you kept the color because it, it grew on you. <laughs> yeah, I'm still getting used to millennial pink as a uh, as a backdrop for my office, but uh, that or I'm too lazy to repaint the room. <laughs> and is the gumball machine in the background, is that yours or hers? The gumball machine is from my childhood. It's actually a real gumball machine, not made uh -huh. out of plastic, made out of metal and glass. And, uh, and it's so old that it only cost a penny for a gumball. That's so cool. And, and, and do you have a stack of pennies somewhere? And... <laughs> They're all in the gumball machine because I'm using it constantly. <laughs> I have to rummage around my kid's closet and see if she's got any change on the floor. Uh, that's awesome. That's beautiful. Uh, what a cherished memory. That's great. Um, Paul, if, uh, am I allowed to call you Paul, by the way? Perfect. Yes, John. Okay. And um, can I, uh, I, for those listening in, let me give a bit more of a formal at length introduction uh, to, to who it is we're speaking with today. Um, Paul R. Williams, I don't know what the R stands for. Uh, Paul R. Williams holds the Rebecca I. Grazier Professorship in Law and International Relations at American University in Washington, DC. Uh, Professor Williams teaches at the School of International Service and the Washington College of Law and also directs the joint JDMA program in international relations. Professor Williams, and this is, I think, why we are really coming to talk to you today, is the co-founder of the Public International Law and Policy Group, P-I-L-P-G, P-I-L-P-G for short. We were just saying before, it does need a few extra vowels to roll off the tongue. Anyway. Um, and the PILPG, the Public International Law and Policy Group, is a non-profit group which provides pro bono legal assistance to states and governments, and I should add non-state actors, I believe, as well, involved in peace negotiations, post-conflict constitution drafting, and war crimes prosecutions. Over the course of his legal practice, Professor Williams has assisted over two dozen peace negotiations, has advised governments across Europe, Asia, as well as North and Sub-Saharan Africa on state recognition, self-determination, and state succession issues, and in, in also including the drafting of post-conflict constitutions. 
Prior to his arrival at American University, Professor Williams spent time as a senior associate with the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace as a, um, and as a Fulbright research scholar at the University of Cambridge. Uh, Professor Williams also served uh, at the US Department of State in the Office of the Legal Advisor. Professor Williams is the author of five books, I believe, with a sixth one coming out soon, hopefully. Uh, on a variety of topics such as international human rights, international environmental law and international norms of justice. He has written dozens upon dozens of journal articles on a wide variety of topics. He holds a PhD from Cambridge, a law degree from Stanford, which we will not hold against him. Go, go Bears. Uh, and, a, and an undergraduate degree from UC Davis. Okay, and there ends the interview. We have no time for anything else. <laughs> <laughs> I'm surprised you're giving Stanford on one end and California on the other end. I'm a, uh, UC Davis on the other end. I'm surprised as a Go Bears that you're even talking to me, Jonathan. <laughs> well, you know, sometimes we have to come down and talk to the riffraff, Stanford. Um, so it's an inside joke for those that don't know. Cal, UC Berkeley, uh, where I went and got a, a few degrees, um, is across the bay from Stanford. And uh, we enjoy every year chopping down your tree. <laughs> which is our mascot, which looks like a dollar sign. So, Jonathan, this rivalry even goes deeper than that. My oh. best friend from kindergarten uh, went to Cal, which for those of you who aren't from California, there are a number of University of California schools, University of California at Berkeley, at Davis, uh, at Irvine, uh, and Davis was actually the initial farm school for University of California at Berkeley. Uh, and so Stu would say, oh, so how's it out there at the farm? And of course, he was always wearing a baseball cap that said Cal. And it's like, you do know of the, you know, nearly a dozen uh, University of California schools, Berkeley is the only one that simply says Cal. Exactly like you did, Jonathan, in the introduction. Well, <laughs> the rest of us have to explain you think <laughs> <using> Riverside. <laughs> this has taken an interesting turn already, Paul. <laughs> All right, let's get back on to uh, more serious stuff. Did I miss anything? No, that's me in a nutshell. <laughs> okay, and uh, I am uh, collecting favorite ice cream flavors, please, of practitioners of international law. What is yours? So mine is a Jamocha almond fudge, mint chocolate chip, hot fudge sundae, no, extra hot fudge. I am serious about my ice cream. I dare you to say that again. You just made that up. <laughs> no, Jamocha almond fudge. It's got the coffee buzz. It's got the fudge, mint chocolate chip. You got those dark chocolate chips. And if you're going for a hot fudge sundae, you got to get double hot fudge. So where do you get that from? So discovered this in Leicester Square in London. There was a Baskin's Robbins right next to one of the theaters and they had this amazing ice cream person. And when you ordered hot fudge, she would do a layer of hot fudge on the bottom and then put in the mint chocolate chip, the Jamocha almond fudge ice cream. And then she put another layer of hot fudge on the top. Okay. Ah, didn't you need whipped cream or cherries? You're good to go. With I haven't lived, fudges. clearly. <laughs> all right. Well, that's, that's, that's unique. Now, um, I'm, I'm still in, in lockdown. In, it's September 2020 when we, we are recording this interview in, in Melbourne, Australia. Slightly different um, 
in the States, I understand. But uh, you were, you did have some restrictions in 2020. Paul, did you learn any new hobbies? Did you learn a new language? What did you do during COVID? <laughs> I survived. <laughs> I got a bumper sticker that says I survived, or at least am surviving. Right. Uh, well, what was interesting was we've, uh, both with teaching and with, um, with PLPG, this sort of Zoom world or this remote world has been an opportunity to, to rethink uh, what matters and to rethink how to have an impact, how to make a difference, because things have changed. Um, they'll continue to change. There'll be a remote dimension to, to everything we do. We'll get the vaccine, we'll move, move through COVID, but there's no, there's no security in the status quo anymore. We have to prepare as professionals to pivot, to, to meet our students where they are in order to teach them in you know, whatever the circumstances demand and however they're responding to it. Uh, you, know, you and I have been you know, trained for years of standing up and interacting with students in person. We don't have that option now or even for the foreseeable future. And so you, know, you and I both have this obligation and our, our colleagues in, in academia to figure out how to do a better job. And then running a global pro bono law firm, you know, how do you provide pro bono legal assistance around the globe or over the internet? Um, I've been astounded at the adaptability of our pro bono clients to move to technology. Uh, to continue to make progress on their constitutions, their peace negotiations. Uh, so, but basically, uh, the answer is short. It's been surviving, trying to to adapt and pivot to, you know, yeah. still provide high quality teaching and and legal assistance, and not just the, oh, we'll just zoom through this for six months until things get back to normal because uh, things right. have changed. Well, I know you're not a fan of mediocrity, even under immense um, trying times. So, um, you know, bravo for, for, all, for all the innovation um, that you have embraced. Um, I'm curious, though, what is your many accomplishments, obviously, and I only had time to rattle off a few. Uh, and we'll get into a little bit more about what it is that you do at PILPG. Um, as, 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 the, as the interview proceeds. But what is What's the career accomplishment that you're most proud of? So I, I suppose the career accomplishment that I'm most proud of is um, launching PLPG uh, when I was 29 years old. And this, this actually comes uh, from a mentor uh, that you and I share, Ambassador Morta Bromowitz, uh, who was the president of the Carnegie Endowment and then a senior fellow at the, the Century Fund where, where you worked with, with Mort. And I wasn't really aware of this until I was having a conversation with Mort. And Mort had reached out when I was in my early 30s and offered me a position at the Carnegie Endowment as a senior associate. And it took me literally decades later before I could finally said to Mort, I said, so Mort, why exactly did you hire me <laughs> as a senior associate you know, 20 years ago? And he said, well, could you build things? I was like, what? He's like, well, yeah. you know, I, I, I'm inspired by young professionals who build things and, and you were building this, this global pro bono law firm. I'm like, well, more, it was really just a pocket NGO. You know, my friends and I who had left the State Department and were teaching, we kind of missed practicing public international law. So we, we created this NGO so that we could do peace negotiations and assist with prosecuting war criminals. And he's like, well, that wasn't the elevator speech you gave me when I, when I interviewed you. <laughs> you were talking about your dream to build a global pro bono law firm. Um, and you went off and you, and you did that. Yeah. Uh, 
But it was, it, it really inspired me and got me thinking about when you're doing these things, there's senior professionals out there um, who themselves are inspired by innovation, entrepreneurship, and, and you know, people who, who build things. Um, right. you know, lots of us want to make a difference, want to have an impact, yeah. um, but you need a platform. And right. your own platform, uh, I had not realized the, um, the value and the ability to amplify what I wanted to do by having my own platform and then building a team mm -hmm. around that platform or to share that platform with. And so that's what's been enjoyable. My wife teases me, this is a long answer to your question, Jonathan, but my wife always teases me. Um, yeah, you know, your website says, you know, global pro bono law firm, but what it really should say, Paul and his friends <laughs> trying not to be bored <laughs> while they're trying to make a difference. And she's like, look, everybody that's that, that you engage with in, in PLP, they're all friends of yours from, from years back. And, and that's what we've 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 been able to do. It's 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 a community, um, it's a platform, and it's where my friends and I can get together, or my professional colleagues, and do peace yeah. talks, war crimes prosecution. Yeah. Okay. So, and I've introduced a little bit about PILG, and 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 you've also danced around it. What 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 did you, what is it? So I'll get to PILG in a second. Paul, what did what is it that you do in one sentence? Lawyer, peace. So what I do is I provide legal assistance, I pick sides to parties that are involved in peace negotiations or drafting the constitutions, post-conflict constitutions, or prosecuting war criminals. Yeah. Okay. So we'll get all to that in a second. One thing you didn't say, lawyer, peace, you didn't say scholar or teacher, but that is a key part of what you do. Well, you only gave me one sentence, Jonathan. Oh, okay, okay, uh, okay. I'm this is like a very short elevator speech. We got off the elevator at the All third right. floor. <laughs> so if right. we're going to the 10th floor in the elevator, um, and then I try to um, uh, sort of track knowledge sharing, this whole notion of, you know, in corporate America and also in Australia and other places, you know, knowledge management, knowledge sharing, knowledge transfers is, 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 is key to the survivability mm. of, of a corporate enterprise. But also, I think in terms of our field, you know, public mm. international law, peace negotiations, uh, transitional justice and accountability, also generating knowledge, sharing right. that knowledge and and training uh, the right. next generation of young professionals. And it's not just telling them war stories. I, I do tell my war stories in class as my students will literally war stories, yeah. as my, uh, <laughs> my students will tell you. But it's also about generating the knowledge and uh, yeah. and sharing it. And so you had alluded to the, I have a, a book coming out with Cambridge University Press, and the title is simply Lawyering Peace. And the idea basically is to share the insights about how the parties figured out solutions to the conundrums that they're okay. facing, monopoly or human rights, things along those lines. The PILPG is a fascinating concept. So I just want to spend a little bit of time unpacking what that actually means. Public International Law and Policy Group uh, and a, a global pro bono law firm is the actual slogan. Not, uh, I, I quite like your wife's version. Um, <laughs> it's a fascinating concept. So you're a, a, a law firm, essentially, a bunch of lawyers that service governments and non-governments in waiting, not non-state actors uh, you mentioned that you pick sides i mean so sometimes you're approached by multiple parties in a conflict and you literally have to pick a side 
Yeah, so the, um, the best way to describe this is our very first client. Um, I served as, as a legal advisor to the Bosnian delegation during the Dayton peace negotiations. Uh, and it was uh, Ambassador uh, Sasha Bay uh, and Sven Alkali uh, who came to me. It was at the Jefferson Hotel in Washington, DC. And I had left the State Department and I was at Cambridge, but I was in Washington for some meetings. And they said, hey, would you like to come to, um, to Bosnia? And, sorry, to, so to Dayton and to be the, uh, our lawyer, one of our lawyers for our, our delegation in the peace process. And I was like, okay, sure, that sounds fine. Um, you know, I'd love to do that. Um, but uh, you're, 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 you're a country, you're an emerging country. I assume you have, have, have lawyers. And said, yeah, we have lots of lawyers, but you, you know, it was the former Socialist Republic of Yugoslavia. Uh, we didn't do a lot of specialization in, in peace negotiations or, you know, human rights uh, or accountability mechanisms. And so you've got your experience from State Department, you've got your PhD work, will you fly out and join our, our delegation? Mm -hmm. So, of course, I called my wife and I said, uh, hey, can I uh, have that credit card number? <laughs> Thank you. And, uh, you know, charge at Eloise and, and hopped on a plane um, a couple weeks later to, uh, to go to Dayton. And basically, when I, when I showed up, one of the captains from the U.S. Air Force Base, from the uh, Wright-Patterson Air Base, picked me up at the airport. And he said, oh, Paul, you've been giving us heartburn. And I'm like, why? And they're like, well, we couldn't figure out which delegation to put you on. I'm like, well, I'm on the Bosnian delegation. He's like, yeah, but we can pronounce your name. Uh, <laughs> we can't pronounce the name of President Izbegovic or, you know, Prime Minister Salajic or, you know, Moesacha Begovic. So it was, uh, and then that's when it struck me that there's actually um, a substantial need for right. someone who has an arc of, of experience. Uh, and I had an experience of one, but over time, and we started working with the, the Kosovar Albanians and the, uh, the Montenegrins and then, and then the, uh, the Georgians, the Armenians and others, that there's a huge value for, for lawyering peace. There's a lot of professionals involved in mediation, in working with all sides or with an NGO advocating for, for human rights or for democratization, you know, all exceedingly essential and valuable. But there isn't a community of lawyers in the peace negotiation universe that work for parties. And so that's why I use the phrase, we pick sides. Uh -huh. my, 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 my colleagues will ask me, well, how is it that you, that you are actually sort of in the negotiations in, mm. in Doha? Or at the moment, uh, we're providing uh, legal assistance on the um, Sudan peace negotiations. And in Geneva, we were with the Syrians. It's like, how do you actually like get in the peace talks? And for me, it's like straightforward. Well, you're a lawyer, you have clients. Uh, your clients want you to be there, helping them to get to yes, get to checkmate, or as some of my clients say, make the other side cry. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and that's what gives you that, that, that entree, that, that e-ticket ride, or that, yeah. that you know, all events pass. So there's a need for the lawyers, but how, how did the clients find you? How do they engage you? What is that? Presumably, you're not hanging out at the Jefferson Hotel bar looking for clients. <laughs> that would be nice if, I could, if that part I could replicate over and over and over. <laughs> to, uh, that would be the way to do it. It's, it's, it's old-fashioned word of mouth. It's, it's when these um, countries, the non-state actors, are entering um, negotiations or seeking recognition, they basically cast about to their to their colleagues and friends who um, who are former non-state actors and in our our governments and ask, well, you know, how did you build up your capacity? And this this happened with us in um, 
in Libya with the fall of the Gaddafi regime, when we went to, uh, we got a phone call from mm. some of our colleagues who were working on the Libyan constitution and you know other transitional justice issues. And they had come to us by way of uh, some of our Syrian clients that we had yeah. been to work who'd come to us by way of some of the work we'd been doing in, uh, in Iraq. Then it was a similar story to Bosnia when we, when we showed up, phenomenally talented lawyers in Libya. Mm all oil and gas lawyers. That's the only thing you could do right. uh, under the Gaddafi regime um, if you were remaining in Libya and you wanted to have a legal talent, but they were able to pivot quite quickly to be human rights lawyers, constitutional lawyers, you know, other types of um, specialties. So part but of your they job then reach is... out to somebody and pull right. somebody in and say, you've done this before, you've yeah. written about it, you've thought about it, you've got the experience, and so-and-so has recommended, can you pop on by to Tripoli right. and have a conversation with us about how we do this? Right, and, and I was going to just add, as so part of the, the, the task, maybe a, a, a secondary objective is to train up that, that local talent in um, constitution writing and human rights and rule of law. Um, that's great stuff. I, I'm curious though, if I could, can sort of double back on the Bosnia um, a, a, a scenario. Did PILPG, did your platform come first before Bosnia or did Bosnia, your first client, come first? So it came about as a result of Dayton, Ohio and Windsor, UK and a pub called the Round Hill Pub with Old Speckled Hen. So this is the story. Came back from Bosnia and um, I got a call from the uh, <clears throat> Macedonian ambassador and asked if I would come by their embassy and have a chat. And I came by and he said, you know, um, you know, you know, Paul, we'd like to uh, uh, sort of work with you and your firm to provide assistance to President Gligorov on the issue with the, the Greeks. The, uh, and the Macedonians had a name issue, they had a flag issue, they had a, a currency issue, you know, fighting over the <clears throat> sort of the legacy of Alexander, Alexander the Great. And my answer is, yeah, yeah, my firm and I, yeah, we'd love to provide assistance. And so that evening, my, uh, my wife, who was, who was working in management consulting, we went uh, and she had a flat in, um, in Windsor next to the, uh, to the, to the uh, Irish guards. And we um, went to this, this pub and had a couple of old speckled hens, which was the local, the local brew. And we decided, um, based on her guidance, that uh, we would create or I would create a global pro bono law firm. It was pro bono because she was like, well, yeah, you're like 29 years old. No one's going to pay you to do peace negotiations. So you might as well just embrace it and, and start out being, being pro bono. And, you know, law firm, get some of your friends together who are lawyers, you, you know, get a nonprofit. So we're a nonprofit. We're 501c3, but we were started in London and, and Boston. And she basically said, look, amplify your, your network of, of friends and professional colleagues and have this status as a, yeah. as a nonprofit, and then go forth and um, get a little bit of marketing, get a, get a coffee mug with your logo on it. And then you're able oh, yeah. to, and then you're real. You get a coffee mug and a business card and you're, uh, and you're real. And then I called up Mike Sharp, who was a professor uh, in Boston. And we just sort of launched this, uh, this entity. And it was uh, when we applied for our nonprofit, nonprofit status, the, after you get nonprofit status interim, then five years later, you, um, you get a permanent nonprofit status. The, uh, the IRS um, processor actually called us and said, you do know this whole pro bono thing. You can actually apply for grants because we, we just sort of started working and we don't charge any of our clients. It's, it's all pro bono. And, and I was on the Fulbright grant at, at Cambridge and, and Mike was teaching. 
So we just did our thing. And so when we went to fill out the paperwork for the IRS, it was like, you know, over five years, we had, you know, booked $20,000 of, of, of income or something. And she was like, you don't have to take this pro bono thing quite so seriously. You can actually <laughs> go forth and, and, and get grants. And, uh, and we've, we've done that and it's, it's grown into a, quite, the, uh, quite the enterprise over the last 25 years. But so, it was, so it remains pro bono, Paul? Yeah, you so don't we, charge your clients? We never charge our clients. We leverage resources. So there's two or three main areas of resources. We receive grants from uh, foundations. Uh, the Carnegie um, Corporation uh, provided us substantial resources for the first decade. As we mentioned, Morta Bromwitz early on when he brought me on board at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, I was a senior associate and for a couple of years and my task was to build PILPG. And Mort did something exceedingly valuable. He rang up a friend of his at the law firm of Wilmer Cutler uh, in Pickering. It's now Wilmer, Wilmer oh. Hale and it was Wilmer Cutler in Pickering. And Mort said, yeah, I have a friend uh, over at, uh, uh, at Wilmer Cutler and in, uh, in Pickering. And you should pop over there. And I, I gave him a ring and I said, look, I've got this, this young lawyer. He's building a global pro bono law firm. You know, you should give him some pro bono advice. I said, great. You know, um, what's your friend's name? Well, Lloyd Cutler. Uh, and of course, Lloyd Cutler was uh, the um, White House counsel for President Jimmy Carter. And so I went over to, uh, to, to Wilmer Cutler and Pickering, had a meeting with Lloyd Cutler. And uh, he had a colleague there, Shelby Quast, one of his uh, senior associates. And he said, well, yeah, Paul, I understand you do something. It's, it's, it's peace negotiations. It's a nonprofit. And Mort said I had to give you some free legal advice. I'd like you to meet Shelby. Shelby's going to give you some free legal advice. And uh -huh. we started working on, on peace negotiations together. And, and Wilmer Cutler was, was a huge supporter of, of PLPG. And, and that was followed by Baker McKenzie and Sullivan and Cromwell and um, Sherman and Sterling and a number of other um, global firms. And so at the moment, um, and this may be TMI or, or too much detail, three quarters of the assistance that PLPG is able to, to generate and provide comes from pro bono contributions of 12 of the top 15 global law firms. There's a huge interest, wow. uh, DLA, DLA Piper, um, O'Melody Myers, there's a huge interest among big law to wow. be able to provide pro bono uh, legal assistance and then we're that platform to right. amplify it. And so, so sometimes though the lawyers that are at these large commercial law firms are actually seconded and sit with you in PILPG offices and other times are just doing bits and bobs Yes, there's, there's um, a long history. So Oric Harrington, for instance, seconded uh, Betsy Popkin to us for two years to work on the uh, Darfur process, which then we rolled her, then she went back to the firm and then came back to us a few years later again, seconded by Oric to do um, a year and a half in Istanbul, mm -hmm. running our office there, working with the Syrian opposition uh, on their negotiations. Uh, Milbank, uh, Tweed, Hadley, McCoy, which is, goes by Milbank, uh, seconded um, uh, Tom Santoro to go to Kenya to work with us and run our office there. Cleary Gottlieb uh, is rolling in a bright right. young lawyer. I can uh, tell you're just rattling off all the sponsors. Um, <laughs> airtime. <laughs> I'm trying to remember which one I forgot that's going to yeah. watch this video and get that right. email. So, uh, <laughs> but, it's, but, it's, but the idea being that they, um, 
they're really global and, and they yeah. dive into it. And so when we did our Rohingya, we um, sent a team of 18 war crimes investigators to the Bangladesh uh, refugee camps for the Rohingya. We interviewed um, a thousand, over a thousand of the refugees. We, this was state, state department supported. Um, it's now been cited by the International Criminal Court. The irony is there. Um, and uh, the um, ORIC helped us translate these thousand interviews into mm. categories of, is this a, does this meet the standard for a crime against humanity, for war mm. crime, for genocide? And they literally put over a hundred lawyers going through these thousands upon thousands of pages yeah. of, of information, testimony from these refugees, and then figuring out, okay, can you build a case? And this is something that would, would have been way beyond our capacity to do. But, you know, getting the world's best lawyers to, um, mm. to help you do your lawyering. Uh, and how was that? I, I believe that was, it, well, 2018, I think your report was published online, which, and I, I will put a, a link to the PILPG website. It, it is up. Um, how, how was that? Did you go to Cox's Bazaar? And that must have been, you, you must have been uh, rather confronted by um, was, some of the things you heard. It was pretty astounding. So we deployed for two months. I went out for the first period of time, um, and then Andrew Mann, who was a recently retired uh, former diplomat, had been charged to affairs in Sri Lanka before that. He came out for the two months and basically helped to, to manage and shepherd the 18 uh, war crimes investigators. And these are investigators that had worked at, at various tribunals. And a number of them had, had worked on the Darfur issue, had worked on the Bosnia issue, and, and they reflected sort of my view, which was, wow. We have never seen something like this before. Mm. The intensity, the systematic nature, the drive to, you know, the, the genocide convention provides for the destruction in whole or in part. They were taking the whole seriously. It was really literally wiping the Rohingya off the map. And that mm. was what was, was stunning. And then of course they're in refugee camps in Bangladesh, which is down in Cox's Bazaar is, you know, highly, highly isolated. So it was, it was pretty stunning in terms of what they had suffered. Uh, in a, in a, a, a few years before, did you not represent some of the Burmese opposition forces as well, Aung San Suu Kyi's? Yeah, we had, worked with, we had worked with the NLD, which is Aung San Suu Kyi's party, on the whole issue of constitutional reform, elections, you know, some type of transition from the junta. This and, has been and, Reflections. I mean, look at look at her now. She she flies to the Hague to defend the Tatmadaw. It's astounding. There are lessons to be learned from how we idealize and how we project upon um, others what we think the what we think they should be thinking and what they should be believing. And mm. I think it's a real wake up call. To all of us who went went all in on you know the democratic transformation of Burma, Myanmar, and have been you know not only disappointed but mm. to launch a campaign of genocide against your own people is mm. stunning, and uh, and I think causes us all to reflect on um, mm. you know when you're fighting for human rights, democratic reform, you know peace, you know cessation of hostilities, you cannot be discouraged from doing that. But having being clear-eyed is definitely a lesson I took away from this. Mm, mm. Um, peace, peace with justice? Question mark. 
I mean, uh, that sort of sums up, well, without the question mark. There's no uh, question mark, Jonathan. What are you talking about? Well, <laughs> Peace well, with justice, exclamation mark. Well, Paul, uh, I believe a few de years, decades ago, you wrote an article called Peace with Justice. And I wanted to ask you about that question mark because the title of that piece actually does have a question mark. And it was about the breakup of the former Yugoslavia, I believe. Yes. Uh, so, Shameless so, so self-promotion, shameless self-promotion 20 years ago. Um, but the reason why I, I, I send this cover to my students every time I teach a class, because, yeah. oh, it does have a question mark. Oh, man, it does, hold on. right. Yes, it does have a question mark right after there. Uh, I'm going to change that to an exclamation mark. Um, I tell my students, right, so as a faculty member, you're not going to know my political views. You're not going to know my views on the issues except one and that's peace with justice i'm a huge fan that you cannot have a durable peace without justice and this right. is why i yeah. like this picture because it shows milosevic shaking hands with a smiling warren christopher shows milosevic shaking hands with a frowning richard holbrook and then it shows milosevic in the dock in the hague with two burly Dutch guards. They found like the, the two most burly Dutch guards to put into right. this picture. No, not smiling anymore. You can't dance with the devil and not get burned. So, One of Brooks' favorite phrases was, well, Milosevic is the arsonist, but he's also the fireman. No, right. you cannot be the arsonist and the fireman. So yes, you've touched on my only thing that I disclosed to my students about my fervent oh. So, I mean, it sounds like the question mark then is a mistake. So I, I look forward to that being rectified. But that's kind of what I wanted to ask you. Uh, what does international law have to do with peace? You know, this classic um, debate, peace versus justice. It seems like you want to have your cake and eat it too, Paul. I want durability. So I have a cupcake from my sixth your birthday. My wife, my mom was a, um, I have two cupcakes. Uh, my mom was a, uh, was an artist. And so I would take the time and go downstairs and get it off the shelf and bring it back. But it's Snoopy. And she decorated the cupcake with the Snoopy. I still have this cupcake 49 years later. Um, my wife also, when I was an undergrad made, uh, we met an undergrad, she um, made brownies and cut them out in, in heart shapes. I still have one of those brownies on my bookshelf. So, so my cake, yes, I want my cake and I want it to be durable. I want right. it to last, last decade. And the only way you're gonna do that is if you extract the war criminals from the political scene. Um, so, I mean, I'm inclined to agree that, that peace, peace, the sustainable peace is, needs to be built on justice. That's my personal view. But I guess there are others out there that say kind of like the Richard Holbrook, uh, the very pragmatic approach. We don't, or, or the Yitzhak Rabin approach. We, we don't choose who we make peace with. You know, uh, we make peace with our enemies. Um, well, yeah, so we made peace in Dayton with Milosevic. And what did he do? He attacked Kosovo, pushed out 1.2 million ethnic Albanians from, from Kosovo. Sierra Leone, uh, the United Nations sponsored peace talks in the Lome Agreement, made peace with uh, Fonseca of the RUF, and they gave him the, the, the chair of the Diamond Exchange. What did he do? He went, he went to Sierra Leone and he captured UN peacekeepers, uh, held them hostage. The Brits had to go in and, and rescue them. And then, of course, they created a tribunal and arrested him and prosecuted him. 
The United Nations Gulf Cooperation Council for Yemen, Article 1 says uh, President Saleh has immunity. What did he do with that immunity? He teamed up with the Houthis and tipped Yemen into this catastrophic civil war. Yeah, we make peace with our enemies. We sign, you know, we dance with the devil and we get burned. Um, if you look at places where they've had intensive engagement of war crimes prosecution, you're much more likely to find a, uh, a durable settlement mm. than when you did the let's get to yes, let's get a handshake, let's move and, on. And so I mentioned that personal sort of uh, view. I'm not even going to call it a political view. It's, uh, it's just a, a human view, isn't it, um, of... of um, of life in the world, th that shapes who, you're, who you choose as clients, I presume. Yeah, so uh, since, I, I, is, since we're doing this pro bono, we can, we can pick our clients. Yeah. And uh, it's, you, know, you, have to, you have to do your due diligence uh, when you're engaging in any activity. And, and this is it's a risky when you're, when you're picking sides, but right. you start with the Bosnians, you know, they were the victims of genocide, the Kosovo Albanians, they were the victims of crimes against humanity. We worked with the Darfur, um, non-state actors, again, genocide, as Colin Powell had indicated, uh, the, the Rohingya, any way you look at it, the Rohingya are, um, are the victims in this. And so, you know, sometimes it's a bit murkier and there's not everything is, you know, crystal clear one way or the other, but we strive to, um, to focus. It's also why we focus on, on the prosecution of war criminals. Uh, we'll work with judges. We, we've helped train up some of the um, initial cohorts of judges. We've helped countries establish uh, hybrid mechanisms or domestic war crimes. A number of my colleagues do phenomenal work um, defending war criminals or alleged war criminals, and, uh, and that has to be part of the process. But we are very cautious um, about doing the peace talks and then the, um, the prosecution aspect. Otherwise, it can become, can become uh, muddled. So mm. again, benefit of having an NGO. And like I said, a number of my former students actually um, are, are, you know, high profile in the, uh, in the criminal defense uh, world, which is fantastic. There's mm. also a number that are working for the prosecution of the ICC and working for some other tribunals, which is, which is also fantastic. Um, Paul, your personal journey, you, you've already mentioned a little bit about um, a few, a few, a few things, a few, a few moments uh, that led you to create PILPG. They all happen to involve drinking and pubs, which is great. <laughs> um, uh, but uh, so I'm curious if you could go back further and um, what did you want to do when you grew up, you know, back in high school? I wanted to be a real estate lawyer in Marin County with a nice little house. And I grew up in Silicon Valley. I grew up in Cupertino and I had worked for a Main Street law firm uh, with uh, Mr. Jackson. It was 10 lawyers. Uh, I thought this is the ideal life. And uh, I've got a Cal story for you. Uh, you might have to edit this part out of your uh, out of your video. So I went to one of the lawyers. He was a Main Street lawyer. He he worked there. He'd gone to Stanford, and I had said, um, you know, I'm I'm weighing whether I should I should go to to Cal or I should go to Stanford for for law school. And he said, look, here's the deal. You go to either one of those, and you can work wherever you want in the United States. Cool. And you go to Stanford and you can work wherever you want around the globe. And again, this is just the Stanford Cal sort of thing. And I was like, okay, but you've chosen to have an amazing life doing corporate law and real estate law here in, uh, in Cupertino. He said, yeah, and I have that choice. And so if you go to Cal or you go to Stanford, you'll have a choice, whatever you want to do. Yeah. And so I went to Stanford wanting to do real estate law. 
And then one of my mentors was Buzz Thompson and he taught water law. And I was like, water law, water law. And as he walked me through, you know, the appropriative rights, the riparian rights and the conflict and all the, you know, California now, everybody knows about water scarcity uh, in California. And so that attracted me to, um, and this is sort of the, the part about this, the series for the, for the young professionals. This is my story is directed to the young professionals because they always come to me and say, I want to do this. I want to specialize right. in this. I'm like, whoa, get some skills and see where you go. And so I was doing water law. And then Stanford had this program where they, uh, you could go spend a semester doing something. And I was going to do legal aid in, in San Jose. One of my Canadian friends, uh, Andrew Trostel, or Andrew Mackay Johnson said, go to Europe. And I was like, can do what? And he said, I don't know, go to Europe. So I sent out applications. Uh, my phone rang and it was, it was Jury Toman from the Red Cross Research Institute, the, the Henri Dunant Institute. And they said, Paul, come to Geneva for the spring of your second year of law school and, and write a book on, on prisoners' rights. And I was like, okay, that sounds good. And this, <laughs> those of you who are watching, the, the Henri Dunant Institute is, is an old, it's the old uh, house of the chair of the chemistry department from the, uh, from the University of Geneva. And it's right there on the, on the lake. And it was a beautiful setting. And I was like, wow, this international law thing, I can get into this. <laughs> Living in Geneva, I upgraded from, from beer to wine uh, and looking out the window onto uh, Lake Geneva. And then one evening, Jerry called me down to his office and it said, uh, so Paul, what's your PhD going to be in? I was like, uh, yeah, Jerry, you, you do know that I'm in law school, right? And he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But when you, when you get your PhD, and I had never thought about mm. getting it. And he basically spent a half an hour walking me through, you know, why it would be, you know, helpful and interesting to, um, to do that. And so when I uh, went back to law school, I, I, and, I, and I don't tell, I, I try to avoid telling my students this, but I actually did one class in international law in law school. Uh, and now I'm a professor and I teach advanced international law <laughs> stories. And, and it's, I'm like, yeah, I took one class from Barry Carter. Uh, did, did you do okay? Still trading off of, <laughs> of 14 weeks. And, uh, and then I, and then the, the sort of, I, uh, and this is sort of a really long answer to your question, but then I went to Colorado to work with Justice Erickson on the Colorado State Supreme Court because Colorado um, has a tremendous number of, of water law disputes and mining disputes. And then when I left there, I went to work at the State Department because I was still thinking Department of Justice, Land and Natural Resources, or, or State Department. Uh, and David Stewart, uh, after they made me the job offer, I said, you know, uh, you know, David, I'm thinking, um, uh, and he teaches now at Georgetown, uh, across the city from American University. Um, and um, he said, you know, come here at the State Department. It's more fun. I was like, Wait, wait, this is how we make our decisions. <laughs> Where you get a PhD because you're supposed to, you should become the State Department because it's more fun. And, and I showed up at the State Department a week after the August coup in the former Soviet Union. This is when, when Yeltsin was standing on the tanks and the they had the coup and they were they were um, you know the old the old Soviets were trying to come back into power, the hardliners that Gorbachev had moved out. And I spent two years dealing with dissolution of, of Soviet Union. Yeah. Uh, the, conflict. This is when the Europeans had signed the Maastricht Treaty. There was sort of all of these challenging and interesting, interesting issues, and and that's what really solidified my interest in um, hmm. in stocks and then in uh, public international law. But I give that example because it was real estate law in Marin yeah. County, north of San Francisco. It's the suburb, um, the idyllic suburb north of San Francisco, and that just sort of depending on my mentors, you know, Buzz, you know, Jerry. Um, Justice Erickson, um, 
that's how the path becomes. Yeah. And of course, my students leave my office thinking, I didn't learn anything. I got no idea now how right. to get a job in public international law. And imagine, I mean, uh, when you when you shot off all those applications for a summer summer clerkship or summer experience in law school. I mean, if you weren't there for that phone call and someone else had got in first, you might have accepted. And what if? Yeah, no, it's it's if you look back on um, as you and I both look back on our on our lives, it's the it's the what ifs. And and I don't know if this story is true or not, but this is the story that I was told is when uh, they started at the State Department, when I started there were myself and another colleague, and there were two positions, one in the Arbitration Bureau and one in the European Affairs Bureau, and they needed to make a decision. So the deputy legal advisor flipped a coin and they called it heads or tails. Now, I don't know whether I was the heads or the tails. I don't know yeah. if I was the one that, that got picked or the other one got picked, but it's that I ended, the story I was told is I ended up doing, you know, peace negotiations in Yugoslavia, dissolution of Amazing. because of the flip of a coin, because they had to make a decision as to uh, which lawyer went to which bureau. And I could have just as easily been doing the uh, Iranian claims tribunal yeah. work as, as this. So it's a, uh, yeah, you never know. It's, but I do, I do, um, Sort of, we'll end this particular arc with uh, the Malcolm Grant story. Malcolm was my supervisor at Cambridge and then eventually became the president and provost of UCL. And uh, I asked Malcolm, I said, and my, my PhD was in international environmental law. And I had asked him, so, so Malcolm, you know, why? You know, out of that stack of, of applications you get for PhDs that want to come here, why did you, why did you pick mine? And he's like, you seemed interesting. And I was like, and brilliant? Um, or an inquisitive, <laughs> or and, or and intellectually, like, oh, you just seemed interesting, you know. You had, and I was like, wow, okay. So don't tell anybody. This is how it actually works. I guess we did just mm. tell everybody how it actually well, works. Well, we do receive a fair few applications, don't we? That cross our desk. I'm sure you, you, yours more than mine. And I kind of that does resonate with me. That there, there is some truth to that, isn't there? Be interesting. It's a good yeah. message. Um, you only spent almost, I don't even think you, you hit the two-year mark, though, at the State Department. I, I'm not sure, but my sources tell me it was 23 months. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, wh why such a short stint? Were you not having fun in the end? So that's an actually, that's a very specific answer to your question. They rotate you every two years. I was having too much fun. Uh -huh. And uh, then my, they rotate. And so you're, as a young lawyer, you have to rotate to the next bureau. And I thought, oh, I'll take a year leave of absence because uh, the, the positions that were coming up weren't, weren't that exciting or interesting. I thought I'll take a year of absence and uh, get my LLM um, in the UK. It's not quite a PhD, but it's, it's on the, you know, it, it'll be a great experience. And my wife had said, um, well, if you get an LLM, that's uh, nine months. It'd be different. And she was getting her master's at American University, her MBA. It would be hard to, you know, sort of go and work why don't you get a PhD like Jerry wanted you to do? Um, and then we can go for three years and then I, I can get a job. A little did I know that in the UK, the job comes with a flat and a company car and, <laughs> and all these, I would have been much more into that. And so I, you know, I, I morphed my LLM application into a PhD application and then applied for the, um, for the Fulbright. Um, and then I talked to my colleagues at state and they're like, look, people come to state and they work for four or five or six years and then they go to teaching or they stay here forever. Yeah. you're not going to stay here forever because you're too sort of, I'm a Gemini. And so, you know, I'm always like, you know, looking at both sides of everything. And um, the, uh, 
And I said, so go now, you know, take the, uh, and this was, you know, Mike Scharf, who'd been there for five or six years and then moved into teaching. Sean Murphy, who'd been there for six years and moved into teaching. Jose Alvarez, same thing. They were the ones who were giving me this advice of, if you got that teed up, um, you know, we're going to miss you, but by, maybe, maybe come to think about it, maybe their strategy was, okay, um, you know, move on now. Um, but State Department is a phenomenal place to go and, and learn and practice public and international. You, and you landed then at Carnegie Endowment. You've already spoken about that. Our, our dear friend and a mentor that I share with you, uh, Mort Abramowitz, was the president at the time. Yes. And it was funny. Uh, again, it, it's not the Mort show, but um, he, he also had his fingerprints all over the International Crisis Group as well uh, that he um, helped found as well, didn't he? Mort, Mort loved to build things. For being a 30-year career diplomat, um, he loved to build things. And so he was instrumental in, the, uh, in building and launching the, uh, the International Crisis Group. And he, right. was there from, he was there from day one in terms of basically this notion of, of having a, a political, you know, a political affairs bureau outside of the state, just, just as I was sort of in a much smaller way, hey, you know, former State Department lawyers, let's practice some public international law. Mort had an amazing community of retired diplomats who'd done, mm. you know, political affairs work that weren't being mm. put to use other than sort of getting paid by Pepsi-Cola or somebody to, <laughs> to lobby. So he was essentially, let's, let's get our, he wanted to get his community together of political affairs um, and former ambassadors and provide mm. that type of top flight political analysis to policymakers and to countries in conflict yeah. and transition. Right, right. And, and I can absolutely feel how uh, the idea of PILPG would resonate with him, how he'd get excited about that and a young, enthusiastic lawyer that goes to set it up. Um, Paul, so fast forward to that, that, um, that career in PILPG. What was the most challenging peace deal you've ever worked on? The most challenging peace deal... Uh, I would say it's it's probably the Sudanese peace deal, and it's, it's partly what's in my mind at the moment. But it's so multi-layered, so multifaceted. It's it's a it's a the Sudanese with Bashir in jail, hopefully on his way to the International Criminal Court. They're undergoing a democratic transformation, and in order to be successful, they've got to sort Darfur. They're sorting it. They have to sort Southern Kordofan, Blue Nile. They're sorting it. This has also prompted the East, the North, and the Central regions to also say, right, we have issues, marginalization as well. And so they are at, at, at light speed working to solve these conflicts so they can move into constitutional negotiations and lock in this democratic transformation before mm. there's a counter-revolution of the old NCP or, or Bashir's old cohort. Don't think that's gonna happen, but they wanna lock this democratic. So you're, you're doing peace talks throughout yeah. the entire country and also moving forward with this democratic transformation. So everything is happening on a lot of different layers. Right, and, and uh, as we speak anyway, ongoing, uh, yet, yet to be finalized. So fingers crossed with that. Uh, the surprise, what about the easiest, the surprisingly easiest sort of peace negotiations you've been involved with? Well, I'll tell you the most fun peace negotiation. And this was uh, Nagorno-Karabakh. So President Truman, would spend the uh, some time in the winter down at the uh, Key West uh, Winter White House. And so on Key West Island, there's Truman's old Winter White House. And so when um, Kerry, the envoy, uh, wanted to do a mediation between Armenia and Azerbaijan over Nagorno-Karabakh, he had the negotiations in Key West, Florida. 
Yes, you do. A fun place to have these negotiations. <laughs> better, better than Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. I, I made fun of by everybody. Um, hence the no jacket today. I've learned my lesson. But I took my jacket and tie down to Key West. And needless to say, you could spot the lawyer coming from a mile away. Um, they even got the president uh, and uh, foreign minister of uh, Armenia to wear the parrot shirts, uh, the Jimmy Buffett mm. shirts. <laughs> that was, it was challenging. There still is no peace there in Nagorno-Karabakh. But it was an interesting, right. real sort of cognitive dissonance between the, the Jimmy Buffett songs and the tourists and the cruise ships. And we stayed at the, the, the Hilton, the Radisson and the Four Seasons, I think. There were three do you, hotels. So do you, think, do you think location has anything to do with the success of peace negotiations? I'm thinking Camp David, I'm thinking Dayton, Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, that story. Um, rather than it, being it, in situ, is it, is it good to take the, the actors out? I think it plays well for the memoirs. Um, certainly gives me a fun story to tell about the Nagorno-Karabakh negotiations. And the whole Dayton was the, the isolation. I think, I think it's the, the nature of the venue. So the Rangelay Chateau for the Kosovar negotiations. Okay, it's Rangelay, it's in a chateau, it's not at a, you know, the, the barracks at, or, um, or Packy's restaurant, um, where a lot of the side negotiations happened at the officers club. It's a, um, but it's the isolation. So both yeah. the Rangelay Chateau and the uh, Dayton Accords were secure, they were isolated. You could create parity among the parties. Uh, you know, Serbia obviously had access to its embassy, but it's much more difficult um, to, um, to, to use those resources. And it gives a sense of parity among, among the parties. Some, Camp David's the same way, it's secure, it's isolated. Mm -hmm. But then sometimes the parties aren't able to, um, to move. Uh, and this is one reason why for Sudan, why the peace talks are being held in Juba, because it's a place that the non-state actors and the non-state armed actors can come and go. Uh, whereas if you were doing it in um, Geneva or, or Paris or London, it would be more difficult. Um, but yeah, selecting the venue is always, we, we, I do negotiations with my simulations with my students and, and we did one simulation and they, they only could figure out on um, Iceland. Reykjavik was the only place they could agree because once you sort of start crossing out all of the different um, reasons why you can't go somewhere. And it's like, yeah, well, you just learned a very valuable lesson. This is, this is real life. <laughs> I think of venue. Uh, it, it's why, uh, why everyone goes to Geneva, not because they like the Swiss chocolate. Well, they do, but also because it's the it's fondue. The, it's the font, not the, the chocolate, the fondue. <laughs> it is the fondue, yes. <laughs> um, and, and you don't just do peace negotiations at PILPG. You also do um, get involved in transitional justice in, in that post-conflict um, uh, moment of, of a country's life as well. And in particular, building, writing constitutions. Uh, I'm wondering, is that the most intimidating thing you do? <laughs> I, I think you've helped advise the, the Nepalese and the Iraqis, for example, on their constitutions. This is the most important bit of law. I mean, this will be the, the, the foundation stone for their new country. Yeah. And, and you're helping write it. It is, it's exciting to work on the on the post-conflict constitutions. As you said, we've worked in, in Nepal and in, in Iraq and, and, and a number of places in the Balkans um, on these. And uh, and then also in Libya and in and in Egypt. And it's it's a little bit similar to, to peace negotiations. I'm always a little bit puzzled about um, you know, you're bringing in um, an international and they're like, look, we're bringing you in for your comparative state practice. Um, don't talk to us about the United States. And we actually have a, a personal rule. I never pitch uh, the, US, the US Constitution. That context is so distant 
um, and uh, literally out of context. But what other countries have done is that they've emerged from conflict in their constitutions. That's what the, the Iraqis, the Libyans, et cetera. And the same thing, whenever I asked, you know, well, where are your constitutional lawyers? Well, who the heck was going to be a constitutional lawyer in Iraq? You know, it, it's, it's not something that's a, a, a good career move. Same with Libya. Uh, Nepal, there were some constitutional lawyers, but again, it was a monarchy before um, they moved into their peace negotiations. And so, uh, and then the post-conflict constitution drafting. But it, it's also one of those places where lawyers are hugely valuable. You know, how do you craft a human rights uh, mm. provision? How do you craft power sharing, vertical, horizontal power sharing? You know, how do you provide for monopoly of force? The mm. parties know what they want at the first, second, and third level. But mm. to distill it to writing so that it mm. actually works and is durable requires going down to the fifth and the sixth level. And that's where the lawyering piece skill set right. comes, in, comes into play. We all look forward to reading the book when it comes out. Um, <laughs> you notice I'm working that in? I'm, I'm, I'm doing a good job. <laughs> this um, is an infomercial. You, shot this, you thought this was bringing to a better place. It's like, no, it's an infomercial. <laughs> I, I can just see the, the social media tweets. It's all just going to be hashtags of your sponsors and donors, sir, uh, and your books. <laughs> Hold on a second. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yes, check. Make sure no one's missed out. We still have a few moments. Uh, Paul, a, a few reflections from you on international law. I'm curious, I mean, because you've been at the cutting edge, literally at the coalface of doing international law, making international um, law for many years. So does it work? Um, and, and then on the, on the flip side, what troubles you when you look out at the world of international law? What, what, what keeps you up at night? It has to work. There is no alternative. Um, the alternative to you know, having, having international relations governed by a framework of international law is having international relations governed by a framework of power. And there are a lot of individuals who support the, the power-based theory of, of international structure. That's, you know, that's ad hoc, that's unpredictable, and you won't, we won't always have the power. So be careful about building a structure based on power relationships. Uh, legal framework is what's necessary, what's indispensable if you're looking for, you know, peace, equality, democracy. Um, you know, the rule of law is a sentence, is a hashtag that gets kicked around quite a bit. But, you know, we've, you know, you, you and I both have, have been to places where there isn't a rule of law and it's, it's not a place where, where, where people are able to thrive um, politically, economically, personally. And so you definitely need this, this, um, this legal framework. What keeps me up at night is, is the attack on, on the rule of law. You know, let's, let's look at the International Criminal Court. It was our idea during the Reagan administration. Of course, the idea was to be a terrorism court, but we came up with this idea. We, the Americans, came up with this idea of an international criminal court. And now we're like threatening the prosecutor with economic sanctions, putting our for what for what donor job? And this this it you have to project um, authority. You have to compete. You have to be clever as a nation, even if you're a superpower. Um, but attacking the rule of law is in no one's long-term uh, interest. And, and what I'm worried about is that, that, that decisions to attack the rule of law actually go through a process, end up on the Secretary of State's desk, the President's desk, oh, that sounds like a great idea. Let's go attack the rule of law. No, it's a terribly short-sighted idea. But the fact that it's so easily done and that, um, and that it, it's not just sort of talking heads, um, hmm. 
crazy talk shows saying it, but that it's, it's governments, uh, a number of governments around the globe. Uh, and, doing, yeah. That's what's kind of, that's what worries me. And so is there, do you have any solutions out there for, for folks like you and I or people listening in? Is there something that we can do to, to help rectify the situation there? Advocacy. It's important that those of us who believe in the rule of law, that believe in the value of public international law, that believe in, in human rights, you got to get out there and do it. You got to spend your time thinking about it, engaging in the intellectual debate, the intellectual conversation, uh, and then you got to get out there and, and do it uh, as well. You can't let these, uh, this erosion of, of international law or the threats to international law go unchallenged. And, mm. and we've all had these experiences. You know, you, you're, you're, you're young and you, you read about the, the UN this and the UN that. You know, all my, all my master students want to go work for the UN. The law students are a bit more jaded. And my alumni who are working for the UN are all like, the law's looking pretty good right about now. Uh, look, it's, it's, it's people, it's countries, it's tension. Um, and you can't be demoralized. You can't be, you can't be yeah. diverted. Um, you know, these yeah. institutions exist because it's a fierce, it's a fierce bargaining process. Yeah. Uh, human rights, uh, competes with a lot of other things, uh, in order to, uh, in order to prevail. And you just got to keep, you got to keep at it and you got to be thoughtful and clever, um, and work mm -hmm. to reform the institutions, work to modernize the institutions. Um, and I guess I, I, just, I come back full cycle, pick sides, you know, use mm -hmm. law to empower. You know, this is what law is all about. It's about empowering people to protect their 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 rights. And so, go out there and, and pick sides and, and yeah. lawyer up folks um, with their consent, obviously, that are interested in human rights, durable peace, democratic reform. I so, sound like an advertisement for, for you know, don't go into biology, don't go into STEM, <laughs> go into law. It is important. Um, uh, quick fire round, Paul, as we wrap up. Um, I've asked you what you wanted to do back in high school. What do you want to do when you grow up now? I want to continue the transformation of PILPG from an organization to a community. Um, when you run an organization for 25 years, uh, folks start to ask you, so what's the succession plan? What's the transformation plan? What's your long-term goal? If you go onto LinkedIn and you Google or you LinkedIn Public International on Policy Group, you'll find about 1,200 individuals that have at some point in their life become associated with PILPG, either mm -hmm. through one of the firms or through a, a law fellow position or employee position. Uh, if, I can, if I can do another 1,200 in the next 25 years, you know, that's 2,400 folks out there who have that ethos of, mm -hmm. of lawyering peace or prosecuting war criminals. Awesome. Um, and having quick, that community is key. Quick fire round means short, short answers, sir. Um, uh, heroes. I think we've already mentioned, well, you've mentioned a few. Uh, uh, people that have come before you that you draw inspiration from? It would be Moore Bromowitz, Jerry Toman, uh, Malcolm, Malcolm Grant, Buzz Thompson, Judge Erickson, folks who, who mentored me, accomplished yeah. their life, and then took the time to mentor this crazy kid from California who wanted to be a real estate lawyer, but now is here with me in Geneva. Huh? Uh, yes. Senior folks who mentor. Yeah. Best movie you've seen on international law? 
<laughs> I never, my wife, no, I don't watch, I don't watch legal movies. Uh, I watch that sort of complete escapism. Um, uh, what's you know. your favorite, what's your favorite movie, Paul? So lately, pick any of the James Bond ones. You just oh, turn it really? on, you just watch James Bond, things happen, it's interesting, and you don't think about it the moment you turn it off. So anything that you turn off and you do not think about the moment you turned it off, goes into my category of favorite movies. Okay. Are you, are you a Trekkie or a Star Wars fan? Where do you fall I'm a Trekkie. on that? I'm, of the, yeah, I'm of the original series. I grew up in the original series and uh, now on, because we're all at home, now one of, the net, one of the Netflix or one of the online channels has the entire, you name it. Yes. Uh, all, the, all, the, all, the, all the Star Trek. All of them. I know. I'm working my way through Star Trek Enterprise at the moment again. Uh, <laughs> uh, it's, it's funny. A lot of international lawyers are, are more Trekkies on, than Star Wars. I think it has something to do with the message, underlying message of the show. Um, best book you've read on international law? Oh, here I'm a total nerd. This is Ian Brownlee's Principles of International Law. Um, <laughs> It's morphed into somebody. It's got a couple of other, you've got it right there. And it had, it, all the answers were there. You know, when I found that on the, yeah. on the bookshelf in, in the library, it, Ian Brownlee, was that, that was that, I'm that going was... to learn and share everything about international law. Yeah. Um, and your, your, your favorite international law moment in history? Hmm. This would have been the conviction of Dusko Tadic by the Yugoslavia War Crimes Tribunal. International law, criminal accountability was back. We had Nuremberg, we had Tokyo, and then 50 years of nothing. When you had that Dusko Tadic decision, uh, it was a minor, minor player, but whoa, accountability had returned. And then you yeah. sort of, you can chart out, you know, you, from there, um, you know, all the subsequent tribunals up to the International Criminal Court that was a point, this is real. Mm. Um, fantastic. Uh, there ought to be an international law about... Peace. Okay, I need to follow up. Don't we have a few international laws about peace? Yes, we do. And they're ad hoc, they're here, they're there, and they kind of, they, they seek to constrain bad behavior, but there isn't an international law which really sets out the framework for a durable peace, which in my view is the rule of law, it's democracy, it's, it's effective power sharing designed for democratic representation, not designed to get to yes. But when you go into doing this, you're cobbling together Universal Declaration on Human Rights, the right. Prohibition on the threat of use of force, sovereignty, territorial integrity, self-determination, but it's a whole jumble that is not synthesized in a way that's effective. That's interesting. Um, you've mentioned so many great pieces, nuggets of wisdom and advice to students. Is there anything left to say in terms of advice to students that would like to have a career in international law? Identify your wow what is it about you that people say, Jonathan, wow, fill in the blank, have a business plan. This is real. This is serious. Have a business plan, get a brand. What is your brand? And then go out there and engage in the intellectual debate. Don't be shy. Don't wait for it to come to you. 
man, you and I, we used to have to write op-eds and then sort of try to get some newspaper to publish it. These guys can just go online and blog. Get out there and engage in that intellectual debate, promote your brand and cultivate your wow. Great advice. Um, and, and finally, three words. International law is? Where it's at. I got my extra words at. on top of your. Uh, no, that's awesome. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, that's it for the quick fire round. And that is it for the interview. Uh, Paul Williams, for all the work that you do in assisting to bring peace and justice without the question mark, uh, to so many people and regions of, of our world for all that you do. Uh, also in educating and mentoring yourself, the next generation of international lawyers. Um, thank you. Thank you for making the world a better place. Thank you, Jonathan. It's been my pleasure and I appreciate the invitation. Better Place Talking International Law is produced and edited by Keith Hibbert, advised and supported by Neil Grant, and hosted by Jonathan Kolieb. Music supplied by Ian Post. The Better Place team thank RMIT University for supporting this project, and we acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation on whose unceded land we work. We respectfully acknowledge their ancestors and elders, past, present, and future. <laughs>